Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hello, listeners. Episode 138 of Airlines Confidential is now ready for boarding. We've got a great interview coming up with Jonathan Sutter of JD Power in a moment. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Baldanza, and thanks for joining us. And I'm Chris Chimes. Let me add my welcome. Ben, uh, were you on the road, or should I say in the air, this past Memorial Day weekend? You know, we decided to just stay at home this weekend. I've got a son in ninth grade, and he's got all his final exams next week. So rather than put pressure on him by traveling, we decided we'll just stay at home, let him study, grill out burgers, and do a very at-home Memorial Day kind of thing. Oh, to be a ninth grader worrying about finals again. That seems so long ago. Um, well, we were bracing for a rough day on this past Friday of Memorial Day weekend uh, as we headed up to Philadelphia for a family event. Uh, the forecast was heavy rain and even tornadoes up in the mid-Atlantic area, as many people saw, uh, but we snuck in before things got ugly. And American actually did a great job clearly trying to make sure that the day at DFW on Friday morning started off well to keep things going as well as possible. So I hope all of our listeners had a good travel weekend, whether they were in the air for work or for pleasure. So with that all said, and with the Memorial Day weekend, I think we're wheels up on the summer travel season. While U.S. carriers talked pretty bullishly this spring about being ready for a busy summer and the expected heavy demand for travel, one by one, they seem to be pulling back a bit, with Delta, the most recent carrier, announcing a trim of their summer schedule, specifically cutting back about 100 flights per day as they get a more clear line of sight on summer staffing capabilities. Ben, what else has caught your eye about what carriers are doing this summer? Chris, I think there's a real interesting thing going on in the industry right now. One is that Almost every U.S. carrier has trimmed their schedule for the summer to better align it to the staffing they know is available. That's an amazingly disciplined approach, right? I mean, we've had carriers in other peak periods just say, we're going to put the seats out there and we'll figure it out when we get there. But that has resulted in multiple instances over the last year with heavy cancellations, lots of people disrupted. So if you want to see the world with the glass half full, you'd say all the airlines have decided to try to run a real reliable summer, recognizing that will really benefit the industry as we get into the fall and into next year, stop having the stories about airlines not being able to be reliable. If you want to take the glass half empty view, you'd say they're just being completely pragmatic and are getting a more realistic alignment with the operating teams about what they have available for staffing and lining up the airplanes that'll fit that staffing. Now, the thing that's real interesting to me as 
liking to look at the economic side of this business all the time is that really strong demand and less capacity by the industry would normally suggest big increases in prices, right? If there's high demand and low supply, price tends to go up. And normally in this industry, Chris, as you know, when prices go up, traffic drops. But prices have been going up and prices are higher this year than at the same time last year. And they're higher now than they were earlier this year. And yet demand is really, really high. So the normal elasticity that this industry sees seems to be on pause right now. So probably no better time for the airlines to trim capacity and get reliability up because they may actually be able to sustain some higher prices as we go through the summer with so much demand. So I think this is real fascinating to see if they've cut the right amounts, if prices will stay stable as a result of this partly and the high demand. And if, in fact, the industry really can be reliable this summer. So all good points in your summation, which is what I would expect of you, Ben. A couple of other nuggets that kind of caught my eye as I've been watching this. One, there's been not a lot, but, you know, some threes and fours and fives of pullbacks on international routes over this past month or so. I think United announced some cancellations. American did. No one's mentioning anything having to do with the Dreamliner deliveries. They're talking just about staffing. Um, I thought that was somewhat intriguing. And then, you know, to your point about full flights and demand, as capacity is pulled back, if there are disruptions this summer with weather, there's going to be no place to put these passengers to reaccommodate them. I mean, the flights are chock-a-block. I mean, I experienced it this weekend uh, with some friends at this wedding I'm at where it took them 12 hours to get from Memphis to Philadelphia. I think they could have driven here quicker and they kept getting rerouted and then they got to Detroit and there were no seats available for them out of Detroit and whatever else. So I think, you know, we all better pray for good weather for the summer because it's going to be a difficult way to to manage through some disruptions with very full planes like what we expect. You know, it reminds me of the Yogi Berra quote when asked about going to a real popular restaurant. He said, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what this summer is going to be like. That's right. And then while we're talking about summer travel and staffing, the Alpa unit at Alaska has voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. Ben, hard to believe that the last pilot strike in the U.S. was 12 years ago, and it was at Spirit Airlines, and you were the CEO. So do you want to offer Alaska CEO Ben Minichucci any unsolicited advice? I'm sure he doesn't want my advice, (laughs) (laughs) but but I will say that authorizing a strike and going on strike are two different things, and it's clearly a very strong negotiating tactic by their pilot union and by ALPA, that authorization on its own will certainly heighten the anxiety around the table for both sides. Probably puts more pressure on Ben and the management team at Alaska than the pilots. If they've authorized a strike, they've already probably thought about 
what will it mean if I'm out of work for some period of time while we're not flying and what will Alpa do for me and things like that. But it's still an unsettling thing for the pilots too. So what I would really hope is that they can get a solution that both sides can agree on before the pilots enact that action. And that would be the best case for the Alaska pilots, for the Alaska management, all the Alaska customers, and the industry overall. But going into that authorization, it certainly turns up the volume or turns up the heat or whatever we want to call it to try to get a deal done. If, in fact, they go on strike, then the best thing I think that Alaska management can do is communicate, communicate, communicate with your customers. You're not going to be able to handle reaccommodating people without flights. And so there's going to be a lot of apologies, a lot of accommodation, maybe talk to other carriers about carrying your customers and such. And all you can do is stay patient and try to keep everyone at the table and try to get a deal together and try to get the airline going again. And I'm sure they don't need to hear me saying that, but it's a difficult time and it's a stressful time, not only for the Alaska management, but for Alpa and the pilots too. Strikes don't happen in this industry very much because it's hard in the Railway Labor Act process to get to a point where the pilots can strike, but they've gotten there or they've reached that sort of idea at Alaska, they may not be out of their cooling period yet. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But the fact that they authorize it says they're ready to do it if and when they have the ability to do it. Let's hope that leads to a solution here, Chris. So Ben, I'm thinking of an eight-letter word. It starts with L and it ends in E. Can you guess what it is? Uh, Leverage. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and Alpa has moved the leverage even more on their side by making this authorization. But both sides have the same broad goal in mind, right? They want Alaska to be a successful carrier. They want it to be a thriving carrier. They want it to be a growing carrier. Every pilot who flies for Alaska wants a career at that airline. Everyone in the right seat wants the ability to move into the left seat. Everyone who's whatever seniority they have wants to be more senior so they have more control over their life. So if both sides can keep that common long-term vision in front of both of them, the management and ALPA, maybe they can get to a path that they can both feel is right for them. Agreed. So let's get back to the table. Alaska and Alpa, so we have a good summer. Well, if they need help in the meantime getting their finances right, they can always go to Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, which is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, 
and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus 320 NEO family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. And Ben, last question. A few episodes back, we talked at length with John Heimlich from A4A about litigation in California related to applying state wage and rest rules to airline crews. Well, that case keeps meandering through the courts, and now the Biden administration has urged the U.S. Supreme Court to side against the airlines and allow the state law to apply, saying that it is not a preemption of the U.S. Airline Deregulation Act because it does not affect the prices, routes, or services offered by airlines. Personally, I'm somewhat dumbfounded because it is a rare event when federal officials are willing to give up any authority. So that kind of caught my eye. But from a practical point of view, if this ever is implemented, how would you even operate in this paradigm, Ben? This is amazing to me that the that the Biden administration has made this urging and come out publicly to say that. That doesn't say what the Supreme Court's going to do, of course. We'll have to see how they rule on this. But the issue here, Chris, is that these um, rest rules and break times laws in California were clearly designed for sort of the retail environment or things like that, not flight attendants in air while they're flying. And so the extreme case, if forced to do that, is that if an airline has a base in California, so the flight attendants by this law might be covered by California state law, they might have to put another flight attendant on every plane so that each one could have rest on a five-hour flight from LA to New York. So there's a couple of things you can do. You can only fly flights of less than four hours, and that would absolve you from having to provide a break, at least during the flight. Or you can move your bases out of California and say, I'm going to base my crews now in Las Vegas or in Reno or in Portland or something like that, somewhere close. But if I'm not even sure, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not even sure if that would absolve them from having to follow that rule. But if they're not California employees, then I don't see why they'd be subject to California law. So I think the airlines who operate with bases in California, if the Supreme Court agrees with the Biden administration's urging and says that all airline employees, including flight attendants and pilots, have to have these rest breaks every four hours, it's going to be economically disastrous for the airlines. So they're either going to change their schedule and say goodbye to Transcon flights from California, right? Or they're going to move the bases or do whatever they can to avoid that, I think. What I really hope is the U.S. Supreme Court says it really doesn't make sense to apply this to people like pilots and flight attendants, even though maybe the airline should say, but, you know, for the people working in the airports, in any call center, of course, we'll give them the breaks they need. That's That makes sense to some extent. But in flight operations, I don't see how it makes sense at all. Uh, I agree. And like we talked about with John, 
airlines are already complying with this with regard to airport agents and other work groups. But for flight crews who are moving around, it's just so impractical and it's absurd that it's being considered in my point of view. And it's absurd we're talking about it, but we have to talk about it because it's being considered. But, um, you know, I almost you know envision an extra 15 minutes of gate time in between flights, like, you know, kindergarten nap time. Okay, everybody take a take a 15 minute break to meet the requirement. But I don't know how this is going to end up, but it's um, it's a very unusual way to apply a law to the airline industry. I agree. And it's also possible, though, that you and I, Chris, haven't thought about some practical way to do this. So if we have any listeners who really like this idea and wants the Supreme Court to decide this way and understands how it could work without adding more people to every plane or just cutting short every flight and not flying more than four hours, we'd love to hear it. So if anybody has those ideas, send us a note and let us know. Yes, please do. Coming up, our conversation with Jonathan Sutter from the J.D. Power Organization. We'll be right back. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Our guest this week is Jonathan Sutter, a managing director in the travel and hospitality group at consumer research firm J.D. Power. We know that name from their awards and recommendations on the best cars to buy, but J.D. Power has a depth of knowledge about both consumer and company behavior, and they closely follow the airline business. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I love this podcast, listen to it on a weekly basis. So thanks so much for having me, uh, Ben and Chris. Well, it's great to have you here, and thanks for listening to the show, too. You know, we always start by asking our guests, to tell us about your background and where you are today. So absolutely. So, you know, I live and breathe the airline industry and travel industry. I've spent my entire career in that industry. Um, you know, I've worked for three different airlines, worked in and around, mostly in, in strategy-related roles in, in the airline industry and travel industry. Um, actually worked in travel technology as well, biometric technology, and where I focus now more on the data side of airlines and travel. Um, spent some time as well when I got my MBA, I, I got a law degree as well. So I spent about seven years on the legal side of the aviation business. Today I work at JD Power, managing our, our relationships and our business development relationships throughout the travel vertical with airlines, hotels, car rental companies, and airports. Jonathan, we all know the the J.D. Power Award, and I still remember when FedEx won that award and they was always in their advertising. But tell us kind of broadly about the vertical of travel and how you work with your clients or industries and what the relationship is. So we work extensively with our clients. You, and you mentioned the, the awards. So we work with clients across the spectrum, those that win the awards and those that are profiled in the study more broadly. We have a large team of data scientists that are analyzing uh, that, that feedback, that, are, that feedback, that information about satisfaction that's being provided by, you know, for in the airline study, by the airline's customers and their competitors' customers. 
you know, it provides a tremendous amount of information about the experience and why customers have been satisfied or haven't been satisfied with parts of the journey. So we we work extensively with with the teams of different stakeholders within those ranked brands to to talk to them and engage with them and, and engage with them about what the data is telling them about customers' experience. Well, Jonathan, you mentioned that you worked at three airlines, including Frontier for some point. Mm-hmm. How does your experience actually working for an airline help you think about helping the industry through JD Power Services, especially compared to someone who maybe worked in travel but not an airline specifically? I must say that having worked in different airline organizations, working on the ULCC side at Frontier, so many amazing leaders at Frontier and learning from so many different people in the organization and learning about, I was working in airport strategies, so learning about airport operations and cost levers within airport operations, working at America West as an example, and learning from so many leaders in different areas there within strategic and capacity planning. It helps me understand how airlines and more broadly travel companies are operating in different environments. It helps me understand because I was engaging with customers uh, of those airlines while I was working there, helps me understand what customers are saying. You know, going back to JD Power's mission, we are the voice of the customer. We're talking to stakeholders about what their customers are saying and what their competitors' customers are saying and trying to not only tell them what they're saying, but why they're saying it and what's driving satisfaction. So learning, again, firsthand by working inside airlines, extremely helpful in helping to dive deeply into the data and help airline stakeholders understand what their customers are saying about their experience. And specifically, what does the bestowing of the J.D. Power Award say about a specific company? So winners of the award are those that excel at understanding what drives satisfaction for their customers. As I mentioned before, you know, the J.D. Power Award is about the voice of the customer and excelling in those areas that are most important to the customer base of not only that airline, but also the competitors in that industry. And so we dive deeply into the data. So our our data scientists run a regression. We we have various factors. So in the airline industry, if you're thinking about the things that are most important, we look at eight factors, like in-flight services, reservation, costs and fees, et cetera. What the award says is those items that are most important, we we run the regression, we weight the factors that are most important based on what customers say. And those airlines or any, any winner of a JD Power study are satisfying their customers best in those areas that are most important to customers. Again, using that statistical modeling to tell us Again, what is most important and and what is driving customer satisfaction? So, Jonathan, let's ask this from the customer side. If a customer sees that an airline they might choose to buy a seat on has won the J.D. Power Award or another travel company, you know, hotel that they want to stay in or something has won the award, what should that mean to the customer? And do you think it should bias their decision, even if the price is a little higher? Well, of course, understanding that 
the company that you are engaging with values the voice of the customer, well, I would posit that that is an important factor in deciding what products you buy and how you engage brands. You know, I, I won't tell you definitively buy this product versus buy this other product. But I, what I will say is when we work with those brands that are profiled in our study, we work with those brands extensively to understand what is driving satisfaction, again, why people are satisfied, what are areas where improvement or where work needs to be facilitated to drive improvement. And customers should know that those those brands that win the award are understanding what drives satisfaction and understanding, again, not only what their customer base is saying, but are using the JD Power information to benchmark against other brands to know what drives their satisfaction. And I would posit that that's a really important part of a decision about about purchasing a product. So I don't want to ask you to break any confidences, but it's no secret the airline industry is coming off a couple of tough years, especially last summer with operational difficulties. What are some of the things perhaps these airlines have been coming to you about seeking advice or how to use your data to improve their delivery to their customers? So the airline industry, as you mentioned, is coming out. It's, it's been a, quite an anomalous series of, uh, of events over the last couple of years. The ability to pivot, the ability to understand how the changing environment, how to satisfy customers in the changing environment is quite important. And so broadly speaking, that, you know, in, in our study year 2021, as an example, uh, that which was fielded from March of 2020 through March of 2021, airlines were implementing like middle seat blocking and customers had much shorter lines. So there were actually higher customer satisfaction scores. Now that passenger volumes have increased dramatically, it's a different environment. And understanding, um, again, uh, there are a lot of changing factors. We talked about the anomalous nature of what the impact of COVID and the impact of the pandemic on the industry, understanding how to satisfy customers in, in that environment. We're working extensively in that regard. You know, we also talk just beyond, even beyond the syndicated study data we were discussing before. You know, we work across industries as part of the power of JD Power and working in so many different industries and understanding what drives customer satisfaction in those different industries. We can bring benchmarks and best practices from across industries and help our customers in the airline industry understand what's driving satisfaction in other industries. Because, you know, one of the things that we note is that an airline cust customer doesn't just compare their experience against their experience on other airlines. They're looking at it across the spectrum of industry and comparing their experience across industries. So that's part of how we advise the airline community or what and customers in the airline industry are, are demanding in terms of satisfaction and what cross-industry benchmarks and, and cross-industry best practices can be utilized to satisfy customers. So, Jonathan, let me follow up on that. What other industries can airlines learn best from? And then what other industries can learn best from airlines? So there are, I, I would posit there's no single industry that I would say solely focus on this industry. When we look at 2021 satisfaction scores, 
Uh, we see you know a large number of companies. You know, we the index models are different in are, are distinct in each industry, so you can't match the overall. We normalize when we run the statistical modeling. We create a normalized score between a thousand and a hundred. A thousand being the theoretical perfect. You know, per, in the airline side, the theoretical perfect airline, 100 being the theoretical worst possible airline. You can't take that normalized score and compare it exactly across industries. But what you can do is understand, like in some of the high performing, like as an example, insurance and some of the high performers in insurance in the insurance industry, you can look at the practices they've implemented. So when we look at, at, at customer service advisory, we work a lot in that regard for, for in the airline industry and beyond. Looking at how some of the leaders in, in other industries are engaging with customers, not only in voice, but in chat, in social, all the different mechanisms of engaging. I mean, we've seen in the airline industry, long hold times and and creativity in ways to engage with customers, looking at some of these other industries to to see how they've implemented some of those best practices and bringing that into the airline industry. And I think it goes both ways. I mean, airlines and airports and the travel industry broadly have outperformed some other industries. So there there can be, as you mentioned, both ways. I think there, there are ways that the airline and travel industry can look at other industries and they can look to the airline sector as well. So, Jonathan, you're a lawyer also, and this question might sound lawyerly in a way, but there are clearly companies that make it a strategy to try to win your award so they learn what they need to do and in the process become more customer-centric and learn more about what their customers want, and it probably makes that company better. But if a company doesn't do that, if they just say, I don't care about winning this award. Does that suggest that they are not customer centric? I wouldn't want to project my opinion about what a company does or doesn't do. I would I would posit that listening to the customer base again JD Power is the voice of the customer. We are providing analysis of what customers are saying. And so I would I would strongly recommend that if you are trying to implement best practices and lead in your industry, that you are evaluating what is driving customer satisfaction. You know, we, we, we engage, I engage with a large number of executives across the travel spectrum. And it's quite often the case that a stakeholder may think that one area, one of the, we mentioned these eight factors before that, that we run the regression and figure out what's most important well, that one factor may be most important, but in fact, it's something else. So understanding that what's driving the satisfaction is incredibly important. And those that win the award are, are doing those things that at a, at a high level, providing satisfaction in those areas that are most important. Going back to your question, J.D. Power and, and me personally, I, I'm, I'm not going to project anything about a company that does or doesn't value the award specifically. But we would strongly posit, J.D. Power would strongly posit that listening to the customer base is important in driving satisfaction because customers want to make sure that they're provided an overall market-leading experience, not only, again, within the industry, 
that they're purchasing, but across industries because they're comparing you across industries. We'll have more of our conversation with Jonathan Sutter in a moment, but we want to remind you that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. So Jonathan, how has the pandemic changed what's important to airline customers? And do you see any of these things as permanent changes? So we saw, we mentioned before study year 2021, we actually saw customer satisfaction increase in airlines, in the airline study and airport study in 2021. Again, because again, middle seat blocking was one part of the experience that caused increased satisfaction, fewer lines We've seen a change in 2022 as, as passenger volumes have, have increased and some of the other changes as we come out of the pandemic. Noting that information, um, I would say that one of the areas that, that you know, we've seen a dramatic decrease in performance in terms of food and beverage. So customers in the 2022 study, customers were telling us that their, their satisfaction as to food and beverage Um, has decreased because they saw dramatic cutbacks during the pandemic and they expect more. And we also run separate statistical modeling in the airline study for first class premium economy and economy, including basic economy. So understanding your customers' needs in those those three different categories is quite important. As as an overarching statement, personalization coming out of the pandemic with a change in mix in travelers, operational issues that that both Ben and Chris, you have discussed over recent episodes, the dramatic increase in passenger volumes, that personalization, these don't cost a lot of money to implement, but are so important. Personalization, using a passenger's name, thanking them using their name, that is so important in the current environment. It delights customers. It absolutely has an impact on customer satisfaction. And that's one of the things that has an impact and we, we would strongly advocate. Jonathan, you've been really insightful here. As we wrap up, from the, all the data you see on the industry, what do you think are the top things that airlines should work on to be more engaged with their customers and provide better customer service. You mentioned the calling them by name. I think that's an important thing and probably very practical for people in the frequent fire programs or in the upper level of those programs. You could let the flight attendant know they're in seat 2B or whatever. But what else could airlines do? I mean, beyond the personalization, using technology is, is quite important. I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that the gate agent conveys the information. We see a lot of stakeholders using handheld devices to know who's sitting where and being able to engage on a personalized basis. I would also recommend the, uh, I guess I would go t- two ways, have two different points on this. Number one, focusing on the usage of different mechanisms of engaging your customers. We talked before about customer service advisory and looking what uh, what other industries are doing. Conversing with your customers, not only again in voice, but also digital, social, all these different mechanisms of, 
of connecting with your customers, looking at cross-industry benchmarks and implementing best practices uh, from other industries, from inside your industry when you're engaging. That becomes incredibly important in the in the experience and driving satisfaction for your customers. I would also posit that understanding the Again, when we look at the data, understanding what is most important to the customer, focusing on those items. We also we didn't focus on this before, but we append we ask a lot of questions about what's what's driving satisfaction. But we also have an API into an external provider to provide a lot of operational data and other data like scheduled and actual departure time and arrival time and and additional information like the tail number using that data to understand, okay, what were the elements that impacted satisfaction? How can we run multivariable analysis to say, we we provide tools for sensitivity analysis to say, if I moved this variable this way, how would that impact not only my satisfaction, my my company's satisfaction with customers, but my competitors' uh, satisfaction with their customer base? Understanding that data, that's incredibly important to improving performance, especially in the current environment. Jonathan, this has been great. A lot of good insight. Probably some things we could talk about again a year from now, kind of what's the progress of the industry and how they're doing to meet uh, customer satisfaction expectations. But we appreciate your taking your time today and sharing some of this knowledge with our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to, to engage today. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Great conversation. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Jonathan Sutter for taking our questions. Now we'll get to some of yours. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the props. Ben, our first question is from Peter in Connecticut. Hi, Ben and Chris. Thanks for your insight of the scope clause as it relates to pilot shortages. I agree that it ultimately doesn't solve the problem. Wanted to switch gears and ask your thoughts on turboprops making a comeback in the U.S. Do you think the U.S. will be able to add the airframe back into the system? It seems like the U.S. has a fear of propellers, and many pilots will tell you props belong on boats. However, with all that's being done about sustainability, do you see some clever airline marketing teams making the case for turboprops in the U.S. in a better way? I think passengers would have a much better experience on new modern turboprops than the old CRJ200, for example. I think what Silver Airways and Tradewind have shown is that it's possible, but do you think the majors will look into switching out old equipment? It's a great question, Peter, and I actually hope they do. I think you're right. Turboprop equipment can be extremely comfortable to fly in as a customer can be much more economic on a per-trip and per-seat basis than an equivalent-sized regional jet. And so to keep service to many smaller communities, even some essential air service communities, to provide good feed into bigger hubs, 
I think a modern turboprop can be a more efficient solution for many routes than sort of a 50 or 70 seat regional jet. Now, if you're going to do what United is doing and saying, I'm going to replace those planes with 120, 150 seat jets, then I'm not sure the turboprop makes that much sense. Years ago, when the regional jet first came into being back in the mid 90s, the view of the industry was that the customer preference of the jet overwhelmed the higher cost of operation of the jet versus the turboprop. And in fact, some people in the industry used to call the turboprops at that time weed whackers. And they'd say, we're going to get the weed whackers out of the industry and have real jets. But 20 years later, I think the sustainability angles, the more efficiency angles of can, can go really well with a turboprop that is reliable, comfortable, safe. Maybe it's a little louder because of the props, but I don't know that that's that big a deal. So I'm not sure that there's going to be a huge effort toward this, but as the industry moves toward more efficiency and more um, sustainability, I think the turboprop, the modern turboprop, is a really good way to replace 50 and 70 seat jet flying on many, many routes. Great idea, Peter. And I hope you're right, but I don't know that I'd predict it's going to happen in a big way. Yeah. I mean, clearly the regional industry went through a sea change 25 or so years ago with the introduction of regional jets and it morphed into a different kind of of a support system to the mainline carriers and it grew a lot. And now it's subsiding with regard to the pilot shortage and economics and like you said united and others putting bigger aircraft on certain routes so i think the regional industry is ripe for another transformation and it'll be interesting to see over the next 10 years how it's defined and like you said how is service to small cities defined it might look totally different than how we see it today and they might be welcoming back turboprops in a way they might not have done 10 years ago when a smaller, medium-sized city only wanted a regional jet. And then, Ben, let's go back to the scene of the crime. And by that, I mean a topic we keep revisiting. It's not a crime, but it's a, a topic we just keep talking about, the pilot shortage. Our faithful listener, Dag, from Annandale, is asking this. Thanks so much for the awesome and smart podcast. My question is, Alpha says there is not a pilot shortage. Why is this true or not true? And why would Alpha say this? ALPA, in addition to being a safe pilot organization and representing pilots well, also has economists and good analysts on their staff. So I would love to see their work about why they think there is not a pilot shortage. You talk to the regional industry and they say how hard it is to find pilots. You talk to smaller major U.S. airlines and talk about how, and they will tell you about how they are losing pilots at a faster rate to the big airlines who are hiring from them. Airlines like Spirit and JetBlue are losing pilots because um, big airlines are hiring them, more junior pilots who early in their career 
might be willing to make that step. So all the data that we see on the operating side of the business says there really is a pilot shortage. Going back to our earlier talk of the Alaska pilots approving a strike, I have no doubt that one of the reasons they believe that threatening that action gives them credible leverage is because they know that the Alaska team is worried about a pilot shortage. So I'm not saying that Alpa's wrong, but I'm saying if there isn't, they must have data or some kind of pipeline that the rest of the industry doesn't see, or maybe they know that the retirement age is going to be moved from 65 to 68 next week that nobody else knows, right? Or they must know something that the rest of the industry just doesn't know. So, Dag, um, I, don't, I don't know senior people at Alpa. Maybe you do, but ask them, well, why do you think that? So a couple things, Ben. One, I think Alpa's come out opposed to raising the retirement age. So that kind of buttresses the notion that there isn't a shortage. I also think, Dag, it is built into the semantics of the word shortage. So for example, in California, there is a water shortage right now. There's a drought and there's not enough water. That, that's just a fact, right? I think there are some who argue that there isn't a shortage of people who want to be pilots, but there is a shortage of pilots who are trained and available because either they don't make enough money. It costs too much for the training and education. Once they come out with all that debt, they can't afford to be a pilot and make low pay at a regional carrier. So they go to another job to pay off their student loans or whatever else. So I think part of the argument being made is the reason there aren't enough pilots in seats right now to fill the jobs is because the pay is bad or the pay is not enough. And the cost of becoming a pilot is so high, it becomes prohibitive. So, you know, I think there's a bobbing and weaving through that uh, logic as well that adds to that point of view. That adds a lot of good points to it, Chris. And I think you're right. I don't think there is a shortage of people who want to be pilots. And I believe that the industry, through its academy efforts and other things, will find ways to create a pipeline of pilots that meets the industry's growth trajectories. But right now, like you said, the number of people type rated with enough hours certified to fly, there's just not enough of them, which is why, like we said earlier, everybody's cutting their flights for the summer because the staffing's just not there. With that, Let's end this week with a shout out for the weekend we just saw pass through, which was Memorial Day weekend. And we work in an industry, we all work in an industry or around an industry that benefits a lot from the military, including in technology and lots of people who either flew in the military or fixed airplanes in the military or did other things in the military and then came to work in the commercial airline business. So our shout out goes to everyone who has served, who is serving, who died while they did serve, and who will serve in the U.S. military. Absolutely. I want to second that. Uh, I lined up my uh, flags in the front yard for about 10 days, just because I really love this 
holiday and I think it's important we recognize our military veterans. So thanks to all those who have served and like you said, who will serve. We hope there are many more in the pipeline. Have a great week, everyone. And thanks again to Jonathan Sutter for our great insights. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.